You are listening to Season 1 of Future Ecologies. In January of 1949, President Truman addressed a nation that was only just beginning to embrace the post-war mantle of leader of the free world. And he had big plans. We must embark on a bold new program for making the benefits of our scientific advances and industrial progress available for the improvement and growth of underdeveloped areas. This is the first known use of the word underdeveloped to refer to the so-called third world, a term which would not appear for another three years. More than half the people of the world are living in conditions approaching misery. Their food is inadequate. They are victims of disease. Their economic life is primitive and stagnant. Their poverty is a handicap and a threat both to them and to more prosperous areas. For the first time in history, humanity possesses in knowledge and skill, the knowledge and skill to relieve the suffering of these people. We need to remember that uh, the main promise of uh, President Truman when he coined the world under development, uh, the main promise is that we will catch up meaning that we, the underdeveloped, will, because we will have development, then we will be like the developed ones. Such new economic developments must be devised and controlled to the benefit of the peoples of the areas in which they are established. Guarantees to the investor must be balanced by guarantees in the interest of the people whose resources and whose labor go into these developments. The old imperialism, exploitation for foreign profit, has no place in our plans. What we envisage is a program of development based on the concepts of democratic fair dealing. You, you want to help, and the help destroys the, the, the people. Most of the time, what the governments, the international institutions, and the do-gooders do after a natural disaster is clearly worse for the people than the natural disasters. Of course, the example for the world is uh, Haiti, uh, that any person in Haiti can tell you horror stories. The 2010 earthquake in Haiti killed 220,000 people and left millions more homeless. Red Cross raised almost $500 million, but built just six permanent homes. More than five years after the initial outbreak of cholera, people are still dying. Some former Oxfam staff paid for sex while on a relief mission after the island's devastating 2010 earthquake. Throughout this time, the UN has steadfastly refused to accept any responsibility for the outbreak, despite allegations that its peacekeepers brought the disease onto the island and infected water sources through their actions. On behalf of the United Nations, I want to say very clearly, we apologize uh, to the Haitian uh, people. A few privileged men abusing the very people they were supposed to protect. We are profoundly sorry 
for our role. I am sorry, we are sorry for the damage that Oxfam has done both to the people of Haiti. Now the British government is threatening to cut off aid funding. But also to wider efforts for aid and development. Broadcasting from Vancouver, British Columbia, on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This is Future Ecologies. I'm Adam Huggins. And I'm Mendel Skolsky. And today we're going to find out what earthquakes, Austrian-Croat social theorist Ivan Illich, and Zapotec Hidos can tell us about development and disaster response. To do that, I'm going to take you to the southern Mexican state of Oaxaca, where, when I am not chasing down fried grasshoppers with mezcal, I got to speak to a truly remarkable man. Yeah, I am uh, Gustavo Esteva. I am. Um, I usually introduce myself as an as a deep professionalized intellectual, uh, but I currently more inclined to introduce myself as a person activated by the people, not an activist, because the idea of an activist is that you are activating the people. And in my own story, it's exactly the other way. It is the people that activates me. And then that is what I am, a person activated by the people. That's a wicked intro. Yeah. And Gustavo has lived a life that justifies it. He was born in 1936. I, I was raised in Mexico City. I was living in Mexico City. And in Mexico City, they were establishing something like the American way of life. There's a lot to talk about, so I'm going to abbreviate this a bit. He was 13 when he watched President Truman's second inauguration on television. The old imperialism. And became aware, for the first time, that he was among the so-called underdeveloped. So he got an education, got a job with a bank, and eventually became the youngest executive at IBM at that time. point was some people reacted saying, uh, well, okay, my country will never be developed. We will not be like the developed countries, but I will be developed. I will join the ranks of the minorities. But it didn't feel right to him to live on an island of development in a sea of underdevelopment, so to speak. So when he was 22, he abandoned this career and joined the Marxist guerrilla movement in Mexico City riding the waves of the recent revolution in Cuba. Our revolution is something like a hope, Latin America, and we have to save our revolution. We cannot violate the principle of no intervention as a protection from the intervention of this, the United States in Latin American nation. But the violence of this and against this movement alarmed him. This was the time of the Tlatelolco massacre in 1968. So he joined the ascendant populist government 
of Mexican President Luis Echeverria Alvarez. Una nueva era de mucha comprensión y respeto. Eventually becoming a high-ranking official, something like a cabinet minister, to carry out development programs. He was very successful, but discovered, to his horror, that the well-intentioned but really large programs he was administering were doing more harm than good. So he quit. I came to Oaxaca to, uh, at eight kilometers from the place where my Zapotec grandmother uh, was born. Uh, I, I live at the top of a, of a hill next to a beautiful forest in a Zapotec community. Um, I produce perhaps 60 or 70 percent of what I eat. He now lives in a small indigenous village outside the city of Oaxaca, where he has served as an advisor to the Zapatistas and has authored several books on post-development, as well as running an organization called Universidad de la Tierra, literally, the University of the Earth. This university that is totally free for uh, the indigenous people, that was created with indigenous people for the indigenous people of, of Oaxaca, well, they don't uh, need to pay anything for all the, the, in the whole learning process that they have. So he flipped. He went from trying to work with development aid to really working on behalf of underdevelopment. How did that work? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a complicated story. But it has a lot to do with Ivan Illich. Each of the new miseries which I've listed is a very specific byproduct of over-efficient production. Each represents the internal frustration of the basic purpose of the corresponding industry. Acceleration in locomotion increases the time spent in traffic. Healthcare beyond a certain level decreases the ability of people not only to adapt, but also robs them of the ability to do something about an unhealthy, sick-making world. Have you read Ivan Illich? I briefly once. Nice. A long time ago. We've wandered actually pretty far from our connection to ecology here. It's a little bit tenuous. So I'm not going to get into Ivan Illich's work, although that could be a really fun podcast where we just deconstruct. Okay, never mind. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Suffice it to say that a central thrust of his work argues that when certain aspects of our lives, which we conceptualizes verbs like learning, or moving, or healing. When they become institutionalized, when we come to think of them as nouns like education, or transportation, or health, the institutional systems we create are actually counterproductive and damaging. Uh, Of course, Illich knew this very well. In 1973, he was writing that the more you invest in producing food, the more hunger you will produce. This is literally a phrase of Ivan in 1973, that the the way to create hunger is to invest uh, in producing food in the modern way, uh, in the industrial mode of production. So when did Gustavo meet Illich? 1983, in Mexico City. And that's when he got to thinking that maybe development is one of those nouns that's become institutionalized to the point where it's actually hurting people? Yeah, and that's actually assuming the intention of development really is to help poorer countries, which is debatable. Well, in 1960, uh, the rich countries were 20 times richer than the poor countries. 
20 years later, 1980, the rich countries were 42 times richer than the poor countries. Meaning, for us, that was our awareness. Uh, we will never be like the developed ones. Second, development is very good business for the rich countries and very bad business for us. That, that, that this has no, no meaning. The reaction of most people in the early 80s in our countries, in our places, was a kind of, of rage. Uh, we were angry. Where, where the, the, the expression was, why we are doomed to be all the time at the end of the race? Uh, what kind of destiny is this? Who organized this kind of situation in which we are some people left behind and there are some people very advanced? This questioning of the idea of development led to a series of conversations. Uh, in the late 80s, Ivan Illich invited us uh, to have a reflection, a conversation about after development what. That was our feeling in the 80s, that we were already beyond uh, development. And these conversations helped to crystallize Gustavo's ideas on development, which are really helpful, actually. He introduced me to this idea of the sexes of development. Is that like some kind of parable? In some ways it is. And Gustavo will introduce us to the three sexes right after the break. We can clearly associate uh, the current attitudes about development with three sexes. Uh, the first sex is the Goldman Sachs, the Wall Street uh, investing company, uh, perhaps the, be- the biggest investor in the whole in the whole world. Sex number one is one we're probably all familiar with: Goldman Sachs. The ideal for Goldman Sachs of uh, a good investment will be an offshore oil uh, drilling um, 10 kilometers from the coast where where no local uh, activists can put pressure on them. Uh, That is savage capitalism. And this is the idea of development shared today, not just by uh, the investors, by all the governments and all the international institutions are promoting this kind of savage capitalism. uh, They are becoming a barbaric kind of operation, destroying everything. They cannot stop this destruction. This is the dominant uh, position uh, at the top of the governments all over the world. I I cannot think in one single government that uh, is not sharing uh, this basic idea about development. So what he's talking about is like, development with a capital D. Development! The kind that's like, we're going to create all these jobs by building this dam, or building this pipeline, or this mine in your community, and so on and so on. So many jobs, you're gonna have so many jobs you won't even know what to do. (laughs) Okay, yeah, it's essentially the imperialist investment and resource extraction masquerading as development that Truman explicitly condemned in his speech. Exploitation for foreign profit. Yeah, so much for that. But aren't there still a lot of humanitarian development initiatives? Which brings us to Sachs number two, Jeffrey Sachs. That name sounds familiar. Maybe you heard him speak on Freakonomics? Or in the press? 
the man gets around. I actually have no idea who this guy is. The second kind of attitude is the attitude that we associate with the name of Jeffrey Sachs. This was an advisor to the governments of Bolivia and Poland, and they wanted to dismantle the governments to put everything in the hands of the market. Uh, and Jeffrey Sachs was a fanatic of this attitude. But he is an intelligent man, and he acknowledged that uh, they were creating, as we know, development creates misery and hunger for many people. Yes, they, they create development, but development creates misery and hunger. He said, really, we want to protect development and capitalism, this is the best, but we don't want AIDS and we don't want hunger and we don't want misery. Then let's do something uh, to address directly with this state with this the government these apparatuses that we are destroying let's use them and do gooders and then he, he was people like bono and other bill gates these kind of people uh, supporting them to do something directly to protect the people mostly affected by development uh, but this i will insist that they are doing something of that kind uh, in many cases, this is also counterproductive. This is also uh, destroying things, destroying the subsisting capacity. I, I must say that uh, capitalists can be uh, described as a war against subsistence. If the people are trying to keep their life by themselves, to live by themselves with their own means, what capitalists needs in the tradition of the original enclosure of the commons, what capitalism means is to destroy any possibility of autonomous subsistence. And they are trying to destroy that subsistence. Then Jeffrey Sachs uh, and other do-gooders are trying to destroy subsistence, helping them to live with full dependency of what they provide to them. And perhaps the slogan for this, people can be um, a chicken in every pot, um, cover um, against flies in every in every bed, and a condom in every penis. Um, and that that will be the the basic slogan for this kind of of, of things. Well, uh, sounds okay, I, I guess, unless you don't like chicken or condoms, or if you really actually do like getting bitten by mosquitoes. I love it. <laughs> you freak. But I get the idea. We're going to try to take the negative impacts of Goldman Sachs-style development and, and try to mitigate them and use our wealth that maybe we got from investing in one of these projects or whatever to help others live like we do. It's kind of circular, right? And as Gustavo points out, it assumes that we have a shared notion of standard of living. Development is a very stupid definition of what is the good life. Uh, defining the American way of life uh, in a very stupid way of defining the American way of life uh, with a certain collection of, of things as the American way of life as the definition, the universal definition of the good life. First, you can say that it is not valid even for the United States. You have among the Americas many attitudes about what is to live well. Uh, it, it's not, there is not any standard. But to apply this standard to the whole world is pretty stupid. We will never have the American way of life. Of life. There is no possibility in ecological terms, um, and no way to have 
for every person on Earth, the per capita consumption of energy that you have in the US. It is impossible that the planet will explode for ecological contradiction. There is no way that we can have for every person on Earth that kind of life. But the most important point is that it does not seem uh, to be for many of us a good life. And then we still have a lot of tradition of what is to live well. Which brings us to sax number three, Wolfgang Sax. The third, uh, we associate the third position about development with uh, Wolfgang Sax. When Ivan Illich invited us, several of his friends, what is to be beyond development? And then we discussed it for two years, this in Mexico and Puerto Rico, in advanced home in Cuernavaca and in many other places. And then after two years conversations, we produced uh, what, is, uh, what was known as the Development Dictionary, in which we have um, 19 entries dismantling all the aspects of development in that specific book. And this book was edited by Wolfgang Sachs. But it is not that the people are following Wolfgang Sachs, but that the people are resisting development. Not by the millions, but by the billions. Uh, more and more people are today resisting development in all possible ways. Uh, then, without reading Wolfgang Sachs, but uh, doing in practice what we are saying in that specific book. Uh, resisting development and doing something else, trying to live their own, their own life. So we've got Goldman Sachs, as in sacks of money, and if you don't like it, then that's sacks for you, man. <laughs> and then we've got Jeffrey Sachs, as in let's make sure we send poor people these sacks of potatoes and condoms. <laughs> and then we have Wolfgang Sachs, who's kind of like the free jazz saxophone of the group I, I get that to Gustavo he typifies the idea of moving beyond development which is I can admit pretty sexy but I'm a little hazy on what moving beyond development even means uh, and that brings us back to earthquakes also that was an absurd amount of puns hey don't give me that you wrote it you're giving away our secrets All right, so, if you had been in Mexico City on September the 19th, 1985, and you had turned on your TV at 7 a.m., this is what you would have seen. Can you imagine? It was a city of 15 million people at that time. It was a city in which 150,000 houses collapsed and there were millions affected by the, the whole earthquake. The first thing that came for help coming from Switzerland was a jumbo jet full of water. Can you imagine sending water to a city of 15 million people from Switzerland. Uh, 
It is uh, the, the, just the pure foolishness of, of uh, send whatever you have and, and, and perhaps they will need water. Yes, send water. And, uh, and that's it. It is, it is uh, a very stupid way of reaction. Wait a second. So why wouldn't that be helpful, though? Sending water seems like the first thing you'd want to send to people who just went through a disaster. Yeah, it's counterintuitive. That was actually my first reaction when I talked to Gustavo. But there's actually been quite a lot written on this. Um, essentially, no matter how much bottled water you send, it can only t- cover like a tiny fraction of a population's water needs. And then only for like a tiny fraction of that population and for a tiny portion of like even a day. And then you have all this plastic water bottle pollution that's going to end up in local waterways anyway and jam them up. And so you've essentially spent millions of dollars to send water halfway across the world just to create more pollution when you could have spent that money actually fixing local water infrastructure. Hmm. Yeah. I guess I guess that makes sense. It's it's the unintended consequences of your best intentions. Yeah. And that's just simple charity. Then there are the institutional programs. Gustavo was working in an infamous neighborhood called Tepito. This is Tepito. Throughout the country, it's known simply as the Barrio Bravo, the roughest neighborhood in Mexico City. It's lived through the Spanish conquest, the revolution, and devastating earthquakes. It's the oldest part of the capital, and it survived by playing to its own rules. A few um, days after the earthquake, uh, we were working in the area most most affected in Mexico City. And then in, in a very real sense, we were the people affected by the earthquake. We were involved in the whole process. And then there's this project he hears about. FAO, the Food uh, and Agricultural Organization, uh, the boss in Rome uh, called the representative, resident representative Mexico City, and told him, you have one million dollars, you need to expend these million dollars in the next three months. And this guy immediately took one of the projects he had in his desk that he had not been able to fund uh, and started to implement it. It was um, for the area to create uh, popular restaurants with the appropriate uh, nutritional balance to teach the people how to eat. The people of the area in Tepito were really furious. Uh, They said that in the 40s and the 50s, they had nothing. And then in that time, they were collecting leftovers from uh, friendly restaurants, and they were cooking these leftovers in big pots in the street. And they were eating that kind of things. They were calling that kind of of, uh, remains of food uh, escamocha. Uh, that was not good food. It was the mix of everything left by the clients in, in the restaurants. After a very solid work, organization, creativity, imagination, in the Tepito, they created a market where 500,000 people are coming every weekend to buy many of the things that they are producing by themselves or they are bringing from other places. Um, and uh, they created a whole culture, uh, autonomous culture, and you can see 
perhaps 30 uh, children around because they are playing all the time. But they, you don't see malnutrition or people suffering of hunger. They are eating very, very well. And what they said that uh, 40% of their income comes from producing and selling food for the people that come to visit them every weekend. And then with these popular subsidized restaurants of Eveo, uh, they will deprive them of their main uh, source of income. And second, they said, we don't want industrial escamocha, escamocha, then again the leftovers of the society. For us, we know very well how to eat, and we eat very well and, and very good food. It's wild to see how something that, that seems like such a good idea at first turns out to be such a bad idea. And yeah, and, and the Tapetans end up being subjected to so many good ideas that they get fed up. Pretty literally. <laughs> you had the puns today. <laughs> and then our friends in the area, our friends in the, the Tepitians in the area, asked us uh, to go to the US and Europe to stop the flow of aid. Uh, and trying for us to explain how this was a problem for, for them, how they were killing them in a, in a very uh, real sense. Uh, and I accepted, I called it my friends, and I started a very foolish trip of uh, 15 uh, cities uh, separated from each other in 11 days. Uh, the media were very, very interested in an argument. They were waiting for with the checkbooks, assuming that I was coming to ask for money, uh, ask for support. And when the message was exactly the opposite, please, don't help us, uh, please don't send a penny, please don't do anything, uh, you are really affecting us. That was news and I was in the front page, in TV, etc. But the whole trip was a total disaster because when I came back in my office, there was a line of 50 people waiting for me of all the agencies. They got the instructions from the people in uh, Germany or uh, every country that I visited, telling them, this guy should know what to do. Then you must go and offer <laughs> all the resources that you have to this guy <laughs> for him to spend the money. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> then I told uh, my friends what was happening and then we took a decision. Uh, then we went for uh, five days just to have a solid reflection. If we need something from uh, the, the people that want to help us, then uh, under which conditions we can accept this kind of help, this kind of support. And then we came back with the conditions. And I must say that of all the 50 agencies offering us help, only three of them accepted our conditions. And I must say that they were pretty, pretty effective. And now, more than 30 years later, Gustavo is seeing a repeat of the same story. This is clearly happening, happening right now in the Isthmus, happening in Puebla, happening in, in all, all places because of the actions of the government or because of the actions of the, of the Dukuders. Wait. What's happening? 
History Repeats Itself, right after the break. So let's say that you're back in Mexico City. Sitting on the couch, you turn the TV on. It's September the 19th, 2017, exactly 32 years after the 1985 Mexico City earthquake. Se siente un temblor, se está moviendo el piso. Ustedes ya saben qué es lo que tienen que hacer en este momento. Conservar la calma y evacuar de inmediato. Me voy a levantar y voy a evacuar. Last summer, somewhere between the coverage of flooding in Houston, wildfires in California, and Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, you might have heard about the earthquakes that hit Mexico, several in quick succession. This footage was from the earthquake that hit Mexico City, but about 12 days earlier, a magnitude 8.2 earthquake hit off the coast of the Isthmus of Tehuantepec which connects southern Mexico to Central America. Days after a powerful earthquake killed 96 people and left millions in need of aid, Mexican officials are rushing to get food and water to afflicted communities in the country's poor south. Uh, I was already in bed. Uh, I, I thought that I was dizzy or something was happening, and then nothing to do. It was just suffering the earthquake. And then trying to call my family, but no way, the phones were uh, not uh, in operation. Then I didn't know what happened with my family until the next morning. Thankfully, Gustavo's beautiful adobe house and his family were fine. But closer to the epicenter of the earthquake, on the isthmus of Tehuantepec, the damage was pretty extensive. All centering around this village of Huchitan. Hundreds of residents in this town of nearly 75,000 in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec region, which connects Mexico to Central America, are sleeping outside their damaged homes. President Enrique Peña Nieto, accompanied by many of his cabinet members, visited Juchitán. The president was in Juchitán, uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, pledging that the federal government would provide uh, aid to rebuild. You know, there's a lot of skepticism that that's going to happen. I think a lot of people are cynical that the government really will help because there's been promises made in the past, previous natural disasters, and that aid tends to be very slow or, or many times doesn't get to where it needs to get. We are talking about 10,000 aftershocks. Uh, then it is a permanent vibration in the isthmus. Uh, and it has been extremely difficult because uh, many people are, have been living in the streets since then. Um, they cannot uh, no longer live within the houses, what remain of their houses, because they can collapse at, uh, at any moment. And for several weeks there were rains. And then they, it was, they were not prepared for this, and then it was very, very difficult to survive in that kind of conditions. In the emergency, we had an immediate uh, support of many different kinds, of the people themselves and the people around them. I, I can uh, present immediately the contrast between two different kinds of initiatives. So we have these two separate, parallel community responses developing. One is institutional, from the government and other countries, and one is, for lack of a better term, grassroots, originating in the community itself. These dynamics become even more striking when we look at the differing responses to housing after the earthquake. 
because the isthmus had really beautiful functional houses. Many of these houses collapsed. Then the idea was how we can reconstruct keeping our traditions and, and keeping the, the, our beautiful places uh, instead of the so-called modernization. Um, the government and the companies, the corporations, were very anxious um, to destroy what remained and to build immediately other kind of houses. And in uh, many cases, they were trying, trying to um, remove the people from their places, to put them in other places. Uh, let me tell you the, the story. For the government, uh, offered support to the victims of their, their quake and came um, in a very arbitrary and corrupt way to came to offer um, money to the victims of the earthquake in the Isthmus and everywhere. And next to them were immediately the constructor, the, the, the companies that will provide the materials and all the elements to build the houses. And uh, many, in many cases, they were um, cheating the people, uh, saying, uh, well, really, I am not giving you the card. You can give the card to these guys, and they will give you the material that you need, etc., etc. But then there is uh, one of the richest men, men on earth, um, Carlos Slim. I think the, the real philanthropists are the people that give his life for the people, not the money. Uh, he's the richest uh, man of Mexico. And then he offered to the people, to all the rich people of Mexico, that if you give one peso for victims of the earthquake, then I will multiply for five, whatever you give. Then many people gave to him the money. Con estas acciones, Fundación Carlos Slim, Telmex y Telcel ratifican su compromiso con México. And then they came, the whole organization came to the Isthmus and they came to offer uh, help to the poor people without a house. And here is the model of the house, a beautiful presentation of the house. You, you know how the architects can produce something like a dream house uh, in, in the presentation, in the lamps, in the photos, etc. First, the people did not like those beautiful, magnificent, modern houses. First of all, because they know how is to live in that kind of houses, what kind of, of um, horror it is. These modern houses, particularly in our settings, uh, cannot be really inhabited. In many, many cases, these are traps of, of, of heat. Uh, people are living outside the house because it is impossible to, to live inside the house uh, with these modern materials. But second, this is a very good example. This was on credit. Then it was not donation. Then Carlos Slim, like every other person involved, uh, in helping the victims is transforming the donation into business. And then the victims of the earthquake will have uh, to pay in the next 20 years that money of that house they are getting for 180,000 pesos. Then just two weeks ago, the people in Istepex has a big meeting with the Carso, 
uh, and uh, they, they, all the architects offering them and the technical help, etc., etc. And they say, thanks, but no thanks. We are not interested. God, taking donations for aid and then lending them out for profit? That's awful. Yeah. I'm going to interject here and say that because we're just a team of two here at Future Ecologies, we don't have the resources to investigate specifically Gustavo's claim that Carlos Slim is using donations as loans. That would be an explosive story, one which we can't confirm here. It does match a troubling pattern of Carlos Slim and his family personally benefiting from charitable work, and we'll link to those stories in the liner notes. But the larger point is that misuse and abuse of development and disaster aid is rampant, and even when there's no corruption, the aid itself can be damaging. But none of this is to say that it's bad to want to help out when your neighbor is hurting. I must say at the same time that there are very good people coming to have, uh, first of all, their own hands to work with the people in the Isthmus. And this has been thousands of people coming and say, I am with you. What do you want me to do? This, I will say, is the main principle, is please don't take any decision for me. Please ask me what is what I need, what is what you can do, and then we can discuss. This is the main element of attitude. This is not what Carso does, what Carlos Slim, what the government. I know what is the solution, and I am bringing the solution and impose the solution on the victims of the earthquake. But there are, of course, people that are coming with an open heart and, and, and saying, yes, we will do what you need me to do. So it seems like it's important to defer to the needs of who you're trying to help, after all. Seems pretty basic. Yeah. And that, like, I guess comes in terms of, of actions, what you're doing, and, and also the philosophy of what it is you're trying to make. Yeah. It's definitely easier said than done. Gustavo told me a story about when he invited Bob Robedale, a name that many of you will recognize, of the Rodale Institute, and Wolfgang Sachs to visit him in Tepito after the 1985 earthquake. And then they were visiting this area affected by the earthquake in 1985. Uh, they came in Mexico City, and I was calling my friends, and I invited, and then we had a whole morning uh, with them. And at the end of the morning, Wolfgang Sachs told my friend in Tepito, uh, well, you have a magnificent culture here, you have beautiful things, but still you are very poor. And then my friend in Tepito reacted immediately, saying, no, we are not very poor. We are not poor at all. We are Tepitians. What? Said Wolfgang Sachs, Tepitians, people of Tepito. Yes, you are a German. I am a Tepitian. Please have some, uh, let's have some respect for each other. You are saying that I am poor because I don't have some things that you have and I don't have. I can say exactly the same of you. I am respecting you. Please have some respect for me. This is for me a very important principle. Let's have some respect for different notions of what is to live well. So when Gustavo poses the question of what is it to be beyond development, how does he go about answering that? He sums it up in a single word. Hospitality. When um, 
Evangelich invited us for the development dictionary. He knew about my activities, that's what I was doing, uh, and uh, he asked that first morning, I remember very well, in Ocotepec, Gustavo, if you were trying to describe to someone what is to live beyond development, what is the word that you will use? And my immediate reaction was hospitality. What does this mean? Uh, that development is basically a very hospitable attitude. Saying my way of life, the American way of life, is the good way of life. I have no respect for your way of life, for the way of life of any person that is not uh, living the way I am living. Then to be hospitable is to be hospitable to, to different ways of life, to different ways of living well. This was my reaction with Ivan, but this is a very old tradition that I am using. Let me use us as an ecological metaphor. 10,000 years ago, the people of this area, exactly of Oaxaca, and some people say that 18 kilometers from this place, uh, invented corn. Corn was not there. We can say that uh, the people in this area of the world uh, is the outcome of a dialogue between the plant and the, and the people. And the people in this area also invented milpa. Milpa is a combination of corn, beans, squash, and something like a hundred different plants that grow wild with the, with the milpa uh, and that are hosted by the milpa. Please try to compare this with eucalyptus, that you have uh, plantations of eucalyptus everywhere. Eucalyptus is a very selfish plant. He absorbs all the nutrients around. Uh, nothing can grow around one eucalyptus. Uh, in the case of milpa, you have a very hospitable system in which the cane of the milpa is uh, hosting the bean that is growing around it. The squash is keeping the, hum the, the leaves of the squash is keeping protecting the humidity of the soil. The beans are putting the nitrogen uh, taken by uh, this really whole ecological niche, a whole setting, complementing each other and hosting the others in a very hospitable way. This is an image of the people in this area of the world that are very hospitable. I don't understand why, because for 500 years we have been suffering hospitality abuse. You have the old story of Montezuma hosting as a great guest, Cortes, hosting in the palace uh, with honors, and then Cortes abused this hospitality, taking Motsuma uh, prisoner. Uh, this is the whole story. We host people's technologies, all kinds of things, and they commit all kinds of abuses. But we cannot stop being hospitable because it's a way of being. It's not something that you can choose to be. This is an attitude about the plants. It is an attitude about the world, about the rocks, about the hills, about the people, about everything. This is one way of defining how even after development, with development and with all kinds of colonizations that we have suffered, we are still um, opening arms and minds and hearts to other people and other ideas.
Future Ecologies is produced by myself, Adam Huggins. And me, Mendel Skolsky. And we are now halfway through season one, which means we will be taking a short break. If you're hungry for more Future Ecologies, listen back into our archives. There's lots of good stuff. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in about a month. Please tell everyone you know. Subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever podcasts can be found. It really helps get the word out. This has been an independent production of Future Ecologies. Our first season is supported in part by the Vancouver Foundation. If you'd like to help us make the show, you can support us on Patreon. To say thanks, we're releasing exclusive mini-episodes every other week. This season, we're doing a mini-series on jellyfish species from around the world. But you won't be able to hear it unless you go to patreon.com slash futureecologies. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and iNaturalist. The handle is always Future Ecologies. And don't forget, we've got that survey up on our website this month, and we'd really appreciate it if you weighed in. It'll only take about five minutes. In this episode, you heard Gustavo Esteva. Special thanks to Ilana Fenariev, Andrzej Kozlowski, and Danya Margarita and her family. Theme music for this episode was produced by El Temporal from Chiapas, Mexico. Other music was produced by K-Maths, Nocturnum, and Sunfish Moonlight. You can find a full list of musical credits, show notes, and links on our website, futureecologies.net. Duranita, duranita.